Think about the type of artwork that we often use to portray this particular event. You often have Jesus, especially the resurrected Jesus, in this very bright, shiny robe. Don't you find? You know, this long sort of garment, you know, a little bit frilly at the edges maybe, and, and it's just this sort of shiny robe. It's kind of the slightly ethereal Jesus, this slightly, um, you know, not quite, not quite a man anymore. He's become something else. Um, you often have, did you notice in the, uh, in, in the artwork, you often have people with these halos around their head. They kind of look like dinner plates or fans or something. You know, they've got these big round things beside, behind their heads. You know, and not just Jesus, um, but the woman at the tomb and sometimes the disciples. And, and it almost sort of takes them from the realm of being just people and makes them something else. And you have Jesus almost, did you get the sense in some of those uh, pictures that after he's been raised from the dead, he's almost floating. It's almost like this idea that when Jesus rose from the dead, he, was, he wasn't really human anymore. He was just kind of almost hovercrafting over the surface of the earth. You know, his toes would be, oh, you could have probably got a centimeter or two in between his toes and the ground in some of those photos. It's interesting, isn't it, to reflect on what does this tell us about how we think this thing happened? What, what, are the, what does the artwork tell us about how we understand the events of Jesus' death and resurrection, because often the Easter story portrayed through art gives us a very sort of ethereal, non-human, almost fantasy-like, quite mythical portrayal of the whole story. And it, it stops it sometimes, much as those things are great to look on and meditate on and uh, to, to dwell on, sometimes it almost feels like we're losing the earthiness of the story we're losing touch with the fact that this was something that actually happened one Sunday morning. I want you to keep thinking about those, those portrayals, particularly of the resurrection, and I just want to juxtapose that for a minute with the account of how this actually happened. I'm going to take it from Mark's Gospel. All right, if, if you've got a Bible, you can open it up, but no pressure because it's going to be on the screen. Mark's Gospel, by the way, most scholars, non-Christian and Christian, agree that Mark's Gospel was the earliest of the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that were written. And so here you're getting really the, the, the earliest portrayal of what actually happened that Sunday morning. And as I read it, just keep thinking about the, the, how, how are we thinking about this in terms of artwork, how have people portrayed this, as opposed to what, what actually is recorded here and what actually went on. So Mark chapter 16, it's the last chapter in the book of Mark, just before Luke. Uh, he says, when the Sabbath was over, so the Sabbath was Saturday, when the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Um, this, this was just common practice. This wasn't anything weird. Uh, if somebody died, you would just, a couple of days later, take some spices, anoint the body to take away some of the smell. Because generally, uh, in these times, uh, burial happened in two stages. First, you would anoint the body and wrap it up in grave, grave clothes, and it would stay there for about a year. And then when the body had completely decomposed, you would go and get the bones and put them in an ossuary or a bone box. And this was, this was the, the stand, I know it sounds a bit weird, doesn't it? But this was actually how it, how it happened. So this is the first stage of burial. They go to anoint the body. Uh, verse 2, very early on the first day of the week, which they considered to be Sunday, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? Because there was this massive stone there guarded by a, a Roman garrison, Roman guard. But when they looked up, they saw the stone, which was very large, had already been rolled away. 
As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe. That's where your white robe comes from. Sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, and this is important. He says to them then, but go. Tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. It's a bit further up north, Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. So you've got this young man who most people have taken to be an angel appearing to these women, three women, two Marys and a Salome. Uh, and he says to them, go away and tell everybody what's happened here. Jesus is risen. He's alive. Go and spread the good news, right? Now, there's one more verse in Mark's gospel, okay? I want you to listen carefully to this verse. You've just had the big commissioning of these women to go and take the good word out, go and tell everybody, go and start a party, go and strike up the band because Jesus is risen. And here's the big climax, verse 8. Trembling and bewildered, the woman went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. That, and, and that's the end of the whole gospel. It's not just the end of a chapter. It's not like there's another verse after that that says, just kidding, they really went out and told everybody. No, that's actually how Mark's gospel ends. The oldest of the four gospels, it ends that way. Three freaked out women running for their lives. And I mean, this is just a bit embarrassing. You know, we don't like talking about this stuff in church because it's sort of, you know, what, what on earth's going on here? And worse still, the angel just told them to go and tell everybody. He just commissioned them, go and take this brilliant news and tell everybody. And they went away and said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. I mean, what is going on here? This verse has been so troubling to so many people, mainly Christians, because we look at it and we go, this is just, this is not good public relations. We look at this. And what happened is this, I'll just tell you the history, sometime, probably towards the end of the first century or the second century, Christians got so disturbed by this, that some bright spark thought, this just can't, this, this, this cannot be, we can't end the story that way. So he wrote another 11 verses, not Mark, somebody else. And if you've got a Bible in front of you, there is actually another 11 verses here, but it's usually in italics and it should have a note in front of it. Mine says the earliest manuscripts and some other ancient witnesses do not have Mark 16, 9 through to 20 because it's not part of the original gospel. But you know why it came about? Because somebody and probably a whole lot of people felt so uncomfortable with the way that story ended because it looked nothing like the artwork. They hadn't done the artwork yet, but it, it didn't look like... It didn't look like what they thought the story was supposed to be about. I mean, Mark's done so well the whole way through. It's been a gripping story, but then what a clunker of an ending. And this was so troubling, somebody had to go and write another 11 And We know they're not from Mark. This was clearly an addition. Some scribe just got a bit too overzealous, and he stuck another 11 verses. And thankfully, that's noted for us, so we can treat it slightly differently. But you see what this does? You see how perplexing it is? See how kind of embarrassing this, I mean, this is supposed to be Resurrection Sunday, isn't it? We're supposed to be celebrating, but we've got this bizarre verse here. What's interesting, though, I think, is that it, it didn't seem to trouble Mark to end the story that way. It didn't seem to be an issue for him. Obviously, he got to this point, or he was dictating to a secretary, and he got to this point, and he didn't feel the need to, to airbrush it. 
He didn't feel the need to kind of do a bit of a PR spin on it and, and craft this really fantastic ending that looked more like what the artwork looked like. He just let it be. Mark didn't seem to have the same problem in his own mind that you and I have when we come to this verse. He was just happy to let it be what it was. And I think he did that because Mark wasn't particularly concerned to create a story. He was just trying to tell the story. He wasn't that interested in trying to construct a particular version of events. He was just saying, well, this is actually just what happened. I'm just going to tell you what happened. In all of its earthiness, in all of its messiness, in all of its slightly awkwardness that these women didn't actually go and tell anyone, even though the angel told them to tell, with all of that rawness and realness and messiness and untidiness, Mark just says, here's the story. This is just what happened. The Easter story is actually quite a messy story. It's actually quite an untidy story. It's earthy, it's real, it's raw. And I quite like that. I quite like, because I'm quite a messy person. Not, not as in tidy messy, but just, you know, I'm, I'm just a, I'm, I've got things that I haven't figured out yet. I don't want just a perfectly clean cut version of the Easter story with a ribbon around it. I like the fact that this is just raw and real and that it can be left that way. It's a messy story for messy people. And I think it speaks to the fact that the story is actually true. Because if you put yourself for a minute in the position of a skeptic, if you just take the skeptic's view for a moment of all of this, there was a guy um, who's had a little bit of publicity over the last week. You might have seen him on Close Up and the Sunday Star Times last week. Brian, Brian Bruce, I think his name is. And he's written a book called something about the cold case of Jesus. And it's, it all sounds quite new and novel. It's actually dredging up the same old argument about how the main, the main point is really the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, are complete fabrications. This is his argument, that they're really just novel stories that were told by these guys. Really, he calls them Christian propaganda um, because they're just trying to sell the story. They're just trying to get a movement going and trying to sort of snub the Jews along the way. And it's all just this constructed version of events. Um, so if you take that position for a minute and you say, all right, well, let's just imagine that somebody made this up, that somebody just fabricated Mark's version of things, that Mark was just telling fibs. Why on earth would you end the story that way? I mean, if you are, if you are able to construct any version of events at all, if you're not actually bound by the truth, but you can just tell a good story. See, this, I wanted the guy that was interviewing this guy on close-up to, to ask this question. Have you read the ending of Mark's Gospel? Because you tell me how that could possibly be constructed as Christian propaganda. It's anti-propaganda. It doesn't help promote the message. It doesn't create this wonderful telling of this. It's actually quite messy. It doesn't work as propaganda at all. And I'll tell you another thing about this story. Did you notice in Mark, in fact, this is true in all four of the Gospels, that the very first witnesses of Jesus' resurrection were women. Now, this doesn't mean anything to us today, but in the first century, you've got a heavily patriarchal society where women are basically treated as property and chattels, and they have no real rights and no real social standing. Now, Thank goodness we've come a long way since then. But just culturally, that is how it was. And if you were a woman 
In the legal system of the first century Roman Empire, your testimony would be utterly worthless. If you gave, in fact, you wouldn't give testimony in court because the testimony of a woman was simply not allowed and it wasn't considered um, of any use in a court of law. And here you've got all of these gospel writers and the very first people to witness Jesus' resurrection, the fact that he's not there, and the very first woman commanded to go and tell others, to witness to other people about the resurrection, are women. The very people in society whose testimony is, by culture at large, considered worthless. Now again, tell me how this could be Christian propaganda. Why would Mark, if he's making this stuff up, surely you'd make sure it was a bunch of blokes at the end of the story. Surely, just to, just to preserve your own credibility in this culture, you'd make sure that it was guys that saw, so that you don't have the testimony destroyed. If Mark's fabricating this thing, he's just shot himself in the foot. Because you've got a bunch of witnesses whose testimony will be immediately discounted. Mark, is if he's trying to do a, a PR job on the Christian movement, he's failing miserably. And I think it takes far more faith, far more of a stretch to try and say this is somehow fabrication, this is somehow propaganda, than it does to say Mark's simply telling it as it is. The reason that it's messy, the reason that it's untidy is because it's true. It's because he's not trying to construct a story. It's just what happened that Sunday morning in the early hours. A bunch of women did, and Mark's saying, well, this is just, I know that it might not help the message get out there. I realize it might not be the, the greatest public relations campaign, but I'm just going to give it to you as it happened. This is just how it was. There's a woman in the States called Janet Malcolm. She, uh, she's a journalist and works for the New Yorker magazine. And she's written this book called The Crime of Sheila McGough, or McGough. And the, her book's kind of about the uh, American legal system, and she's quite critical of it. And she ends up arguing that if you are a lawyer and you are arguing and you're defending someone who's guilty, you actually have an easier job than if you were defending someone who's innocent. Because if you're defending someone who's guilty, you can basically construct your own version of events. It's quite cynical. But she's saying, you know, you're not bound by the truth. You're trying to tell a story. You're trying to construct this way of telling the story. Whereas if you're innocent, if you're defending an innocent person, you're, you, you've got to rely on the truth and all of its messiness and all of its murkiness. And the truth is often not what people want to hear. It's often not what wins the day because it's often not that worth listening to. It doesn't make as good a story. Here's what she says. She sort of brings us all together in this quote. She says, The truth is messy, incoherent, aimless, boring, absurd. The truth does not make a good story. That's why we have art. You see, think about that in, in, in light of what we talked about before. It's true, isn't it? The art tells the wonder the story. But the truth is just, it's the truth. It's just what happened. And it sometimes doesn't grab us as a story, but that's precisely because it's just real and raw and actually what happened. Mark's not making this up. He couldn't be because if he was, he would just be an idiot to include these details in his story. He's just giving us a version of events. And if this is actually true, if what Mark is writing is what actually happened then you're left with this quite alarming reality that Jesus really did rise from the dead. 
And if Jesus really did rise from the dead, then that, that changes everything. All of a sudden, everything starts to look different because Jesus was exactly who he said he was, not just a wannabe prophet, not just a would-be Messiah. He was actually the Son of God. Now, you might feel like that's a huge conceptual leap to go from, from Mark's gospel to Jesus, the Son of God, but this is ultimately what Easter Sunday confronts us with. This is ultimately the challenge of the gospel, that Jesus, through his resurrection, demonstrates authentically that he is, in fact, exactly who he said he was, the Son of God. And that starts to have implications much more broadly than just a nice story told once upon a time for a bunch of people. This suddenly becomes not just a story that Christians tell themselves at Easter to make themselves feel better. It becomes a story that has implications for your life and for my life that speaks with relevance and conviction into 21st century New Zealand. Because you can come along to church on Easter Sunday and you hear the story and you sing the songs and it all feels quite good, but this is actually something real. There's something true here. And that truth has a way of permeating out into the fabric of society and the fabric of our lives. It actually challenges us, this reality that Jesus was, in fact, the Son of God. You can start to see why these women weren't just sort of throwing up their hands and singing hallelujah. They were actually quite bewildered. They were actually terrified. This might be the position you find yourself in because you don't expect the story to challenge you quite this way. And when you allow it to, and when you allow yourself to be confronted by what actually happened, you can find yourself standing in the shoes of these women. You're a bit terrified. The story can do that to you. You're challenged. You're confronted. You might be bewildered. It's a great word, eh? Bewildered. You know, it literally means, the word bewildered means to lose your bearings. To, be, to become disoriented. To completely lose your way. Have you ever had this feeling of being totally disorientated? To lose your bearings? I had this situation once. My wife Anna and I were in the States. We were driving around Seattle. And uh, we were trying to find our way. We'd, I think we'd gone out for dinner. We were trying to find our way back to our hotel. And we were relying in our rental car on good old uh, GPS to give us the way, you know, with the smooth-talking woman's voice telling you turn left, turn right in so many metres or feet. And so we were just driving along, and we got to one particular road, and the GPS told us to turn left. But the road was blocked off by construction. Now, clearly the message had not got through to the GPS lady that this, the construction was happening. So we couldn't turn left. So we just drove straight past and, you know, then there's this pause with the GPS person, with a nav man or whatever you've got. And, uh, and then, then she comes back online, you know, recalculating, recalculating your route. And then she says, okay, do, do a U-turn. So we did a U-turn and we come back and now she says, turn right. <laughs> and do the same street that we just couldn't turn down. So we, we couldn't do it, so we just kept going. And then, so there's, then there's another silence. You know, it's like she's giving you the silent treatment now. And you start to feel like it's personal, you know. So, and then, you know, same thing. She comes back online, recalculating, rec do another U-turn. And we did, we did this a couple of times. We were a bit slow before figuring out this is not going to get any better. It's because she doesn't get the fact that there's construction here. And all of a sudden, there's this sort of feeling that comes over you like, I'm utterly bewildered. You know, I've lost my bearings. The nav man woman is useless. <laughs> it doesn't work anymore. I don't know where I am. And, and, and so we're just suddenly lost at sea. We're stuck. 
We're bewildered. And we eventually did find our way back to our hotel, you'll be pleased to know. But, you know, it wasn't with any help from the, from the GPS system. You just feel that, you know, that sense of just being lost. And all of a sudden, the maps that you're relying on just don't work anymore. That's a bit like what these women felt. I think when they got to the tomb, they're standing at the face of the tomb because they came, they weren't expecting Jesus to be risen. There was nothing, when Jesus died on the Friday, nobody said, oh, well, that's okay, he's going to rise again on Sunday. Nobody was expecting that. Why do you think they went home so dejected? For them, it was game over. So these women came to the tomb not expecting this. They had a map, they had a way of thinking, they had a worldview that said, basically, well, we, had a, we, we gave it a good shot. We thought this guy was going to be the one. Clearly, he wasn't. Let's just get on with it. Let's go after the next Messiah. They got to the tomb. What they saw bewildered them as much as it might bewilder you, that he is actually risen, that he's actually then. They put it together. He's, he must have been who he said he was. He must have been in some way the son of of God, identified with God himself. That suddenly challenges you and it can leave you very disoriented. I actually think this is the first thing that Jesus wants to do to us at Easter, is to disorientate us. It might sound a bit mean, but I think what he wants to show you and I is that our old maps actually don't work anymore. That our old way of thinking can't handle the weight of resurrection. This is the problem. You've got an event that simply doesn't work if you, you know, in your old naturalistic, humanistic, modernistic worldview, can't handle the weight of resurrection. So either you can throw the event out and say, no no way, impossible, doesn't match my rules, my criteria. Or you can say, perhaps the problem is with my worldview. Perhaps the problem is with the map that I've been using to try and construct a version of reality that works for me, that hasn't been able to handle the weight of what took place a couple thousand years ago, few thousand kilometers away outside of Jerusalem, an event that shakes us and our worldview to the core because Jesus is who he said he was. Jesus is risen from the dead. But this has a a bewildering effect. And we find ourselves bewildered and terrified and confused and even afraid. That might be how you respond. That might be the effect that this message has. And it's okay. I think that that's actually intended, that we get to a point where we realize that we are actually all bewildered, that we're all quite disoriented in life, even those of us that think we've got it all together. You can come into a church like this. It's amazing. Sometimes people have said to me, man, you, you come into this church and it just seems like everyone's got it all together. And you just want to say, you know, just scratch a little bit below the surface. There's a bunch of disoriented people here. There's a bunch of hurt and a bunch of pain and struggle that goes on. And those of us that look like we've got it all together, all that means is that we are brilliant pretenders. That's what that, we are genius mask wearers. You know, that, that's, that's what we've perfected, is projecting the self, projecting the image like we've got it all together, the packaged, marketed, branded self that you put out there on Facebook. That is who we have become geniuses at. But it's not really who we are. And maybe this morning's a morning just to take a quick look and an honest look at who you really are. And perhaps you find someone that's a bit disoriented. Perhaps you find someone that's actually a bit bewildered by the whole thing. And that's okay. And the truth that the Bible pushes us towards is this reality that that disorientation that you experience and feel and can honestly name, maybe on a morning like this, it is traced back to the fact that we have lost our anchorage with God. We've become disconnected from the only true constant in the universe, and that is God himself. When that happens, everything else becomes completely disoriented. You lose your reference points. You lose your bearings. We are all disoriented. The Bible simply calls this sin. 
It's a relational idea that we've lost our connection with God, that we are lost at sea, we've lost our bearings, and the old maps no longer work. But much as this event begins by disorientating us, it ends, if we let it, by reorientating us around the reality of what's actually taken place in this story. The Easter story not only has the power to bewilder you and disorientate you, but actually to start putting things back together, albeit in a new way. It gives you some new reference points, and the two big reference points of Easter, of course, are the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus. But what happens as you start to look at these events is they no longer just become things that happened to one guy one day ages ago. They no longer become things that just churches and Christian people sing about that I don't care about. They become things that I'm actually drawn into. The death of Jesus is something that you are invited into. Jesus died not just for himself, but for you. He died to take upon himself the weight of all your bewilderment, your fear, your frustration, the skeletons in your closet, the hidden secrets in your past, the mistakes, the failures, the shortcomings, the weaknesses, the frustrations, the neuroses, the psychoses, anything that you have that makes us less than what we are. Jesus absorbed it all on the cross. That's what he has done. He's died for us and he's died with us. Because he invites us to go through a dying of our own. Where we put aside the old way of thinking that left no room for resurrection. And left no room for these eternally weighty matters. And instead to actually enter into this death of Jesus. To take it on as our own. To actually go through a dying of our own where we say, I, that old life. That old way of just trying to do it my way, myself, that declaration of independence from God that I made years ago, it hasn't worked. It's not going to get me where I need to go. It's not the way God intended me to live. And then you get to Jesus' resurrection. And again, this becomes not just an event that one man went through one morning, but something that every one of us are invited to go through ourselves. Because when Jesus walked out of the tomb that morning, he brought you and I with him in a sense. He brought our lives for all of those that would choose it and accept it. He walked out of the tomb for us, bringing with him a whole new future, a whole new life, a whole new way of being reconnected and re-anchored to the God who gives meaning, who gives purpose, who can speak some meaning and some order into the chaos of an otherwise disordered existence that you might be living. The resurrection speaks of a new life that's broken into the present, even in the midst of all the junk. And this is the wonder of the story. You know, you find these women come to the tomb and Jesus is already risen, but they're still bewildered and they're still afraid. And I wish I could tell you that if you accept Christ, if you, come, if you begin a relationship with, with God, if you, if you become uh, in relationship with Jesus, that suddenly the world is going to sort itself out. Suddenly all the bewilderment will be gone. But this is not the promise that the Bible gives us. The promise is that you will be changed in the midst of that stuff, that you'll become a different person, even in the midst of the muck and the mess and the filth of your life, that you're transformed by the new life of having relationship with God. It's not a quick fix. It's not suddenly propping up your bank account. It's not suddenly fixing every relationship that's gone bad. It's not solving health issues. It is a relationship with the God who lives that changes you and therefore changes the way that you approach and look at those circumstances 
you become different in the midst of your circumstances. Not that your circumstances necessarily change. There's still a fair amount of bewilderment. I still feel quite disoriented at times. Afraid, doubting, fearful. All that is still part of the package. And the problem is sometimes that we come to God, we come to Jesus, and we sort of see having a relationship with Jesus kind of like, um, like going, on a, going on an overseas trip. You know, you turn up at the airport, and all your bags are packed, and you've got your plane tickets, and you arrive like three hours early, and everything's just as it should be, and then you step onto the plane. Like this very ordered, very one-moment-in-time kind of thing. You know, that's not always how it is. I think sometimes, is how it is for me anyway, sometimes coming into a relationship with God can be more like what happened to Tom Hanks in Castaway. Right? Sometimes it feels like a plane crash. Because sometimes you feel, and, and maybe you're going through this even as we're talking this morning, sometimes you feel like it's like the old reality is just slipping away. And there might not be a moment in time, but you suddenly find yourself, the old map doesn't work. The old way of thinking doesn't work. And you, and you begin to enter into this new way, this new reality, this new life, and you, and you begin to learn to live within it and relate to God within it. And slowly you begin to adapt and make sense of it. That, for a lot of people, can be the process of becoming a Christian. Not necessarily a moment in time. And certainly not having all your questions. If you wait to have all your questions answered before you become a Christian, you will never, ever do I don't have my questions. In fact, I think becoming a Christian has given me more questions. But they're good questions, and I can answer them with faith. And I can answer them on the other side of commitment, in the context of meaning and purpose and reason and direction in life. If you think becoming a follower of Jesus is going to somehow eliminate all your doubts, you're dreaming. Doubt and faith go together. They're two sides of the same coin. They're meant to coexist. Coming to Christ doesn't get rid of all your doubts. If you think, here's the worst one, if you think you've got to have your life all together, have everything all sorted out before you become a Christian, you've totally missed the point. Jesus didn't come for good people. He came for hopeless people. He came for broken people. He came for messed up people, screwed up people, people that have just blown it in a number of ways. He came for brilliant pretenders, but people who underneath their lives are actually not all that they present themselves to be. These are the people that Jesus came to save and to rescue and to bring into relationship with himself. So don't see it like this big thing. I've just got to have everything sorted out. I've got to know all the answers. All my doubts are gone. Finally, I have total confidence and I'm going to take this huge step off, step off a cliff. Just begin walking into it as this new reality. And gradually things start to become clear. I'll tell you practically. I met with a guy the other day who was saying, he said, you know, this, this whole thing with becoming a Christian and knowing God, he said, I've got the information together. I know that I've got the knowledge about it and I think I understand and accept. But he said, I'm just not quite sure what the next thing is. And we talked for that conversation about the idea of just beginning a conversation with God. Because for him, he had information and he had knowledge, but he didn't have any kind of relationship yet with God. And I said, you know, just take this first initial. It's the most practical of steps. But actually just begin talking with God. I think sometimes we do make it too hard for people. You've got to pray the right prayer. You've got to say the right things. You've got to do this thing. You've got to have whatever. Just start talking to God. 
whoever you are, how long has it actually been? Just think for a minute, wherever you are, think how long it's been since you actually had a conversation with God. Is there a better day to have a conversation with God than Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday? You don't have to have all your, you don't even have to really believe that God exists. Your conversation with God might be, hey God, I don't even know whether any of this is real. But I'm keen to explore this and find out where it goes and I just want to take the first step. That's all I'm ready for, but I just want to take the first step on this journey. You can just have, you could have that conversation in the car on the way home. If someone pulls up to you next to, at, at the lights, you're going to look a bit stupid, but just don't say it with your mouth open. Just say it in your head. You can say this in your bedroom. You can have this conversation anywhere and, and just wherever you, just begin the conversation. Some of you, the conversation might be a conversation that begins with getting out a whole lot of stuff. Pain, frustration, anger, questions, doubt. You might not get any answers. You, you probably are not going to get any, any audible voice back, but it doesn't mean you can't have the conversation. And some of you might be right at that point where the conversation is, God, I'm ready. You know, you're like ripe fruit that is just ready, you know, and you know it. You know if you're in this place, you're just ready this morning. You're like, you know, this is just the last step on my journey and I, today is going to be the day. I'm going to cross that line. I'm going to come to, I'm going to begin this, rel- don't have all my questions answered, certainly don't have my life figured out, but I want to figure it out with Jesus, not without him. I want to allow God to transform me. If you are in that position this morning, I'm going to tell you, there's going to be so much weighing on you when you leave this building that's going to push that right out of your head. You've got a million Easter eggs to eat. You've got a thousand hot cross buns to consume before lunchtime. It's just going to go. It's just going to disappear. And this is why when these moments come, just a moment of clarity, sometimes sitting maybe in a service like this, suddenly you just see life and death and future and faith clearer than you've ever seen it. That is the time to take hold of it and act. That's the time to step into it. Not a wait. That's not a time to shrink back. That's a time to be big enough to own it and to say, you know, I am messed up. I am broken. I've got to a point in my life where I can say that. Fairly honest, I'm messed up, screwed up, broken, whatever. But I am I'm moving into this thing. And maybe that's, I can't make you say that and, I, and, and the words themselves mean nothing. But if that's where your heart is this morning, then I'm encouraging you to simply act on that and step into that and begin that conversation and simply see it as going through in your own way exactly what Jesus went through at Easter. There's a dying, a dying to the old life. There's a putting aside, there's God, I'm sorry for all that. I'm, it, it's messed up. And then there's this rising. Jesus' resurrection becomes your resurrection. I'm taking on this new life, God. I want this relationship with you. I ask that you would come and fill me and, and, and become a friend to me and enter into relationship with me. And I want to live life in that context. I can guarantee you, if you make that decision today, you will go out this week and you'll blow it. You'll blow it every day and you'll mess up and you'll become frustrated because you thought, oh, well, I said this thing and I thought I was now going to be this and maybe it has Listen, you're still human. You're still a broken person and you still live with a fair amount of bewilderment. But allow that to happen in the context of faith and know in your heart of hearts that every single time you mess up, God's forgiveness just hits you again and God's grace just hits you again and God's mercy just hits and it never, ever ever stops. Doesn't matter how far you run. Doesn't matter how fast you run. Doesn't matter how deep the hole God's going to pick you up every time. We have a much harder time believing that ourselves and forgiving ourselves than, than, than God does. He's, he's perfectly ready to forgive you.
million, billion times over. He'll do it. We, we are the ones. We just need to accept it because it's so counterintuitive and it's so countercultural. But God's grace never ends. And I'll tell you what we're going to do this morning. As I just encourage you, and this is for everyone. You might have been a Christian for, 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 for 50 years. I ask you this morning to begin or to have a conversation with God. For some of you this morning, you know, you've, you've been around this track for a long time, and it might just be a conversation of being lost in the wonder of resurrection and just renewing maybe that first commitment that you made all those years ago. For others of you, this might be the first time you've ever talked with God, but don't let the fact you haven't done it before put you off doing it today. And we're going to do all this in a very special context. We're going to do it in the context of communion. Or, you know, you might know it as the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper, something like that. Let me just say this. We don't take communion in this church because we're good Christians. We take it because we're hopeless Christians who mess up every single day and desperately need God's mercy and desperately need God's grace. That's why we cling to these things so strongly that sometimes the cup cracks. Because we desperately need this mercy. And we de- it's all we've got. It's all we've got, man. It's all I've got. It, when everything else is stripped away, what do you got? This is what I've got. This that reminds me of Jesus' death for me. His body broken for me. And his blood poured out. I clutch them. Because I believe with all of my might. Not just in a subjective feeling, but in the objective reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. That have changed everything for me. I want to invite you into that conversation this morning. Wherever you're at and whatever the words are, they're your words, not mine. Let me just kick us off into that. Let me just pray to open that up. And then those who are serving communion can just come and serve it. And the band can maybe pray, play quietly. And then we'll finish with a final song. But don't just, you know, don't, 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 don't go thinking about the Easter eggs just yet. Just keep in this moment. And let's just allow ourselves to hear from God and speak to God wherever on your journey you are. Let's open ourselves up to that this morning. Let's pray together. God, I thank you that far more important than me talking and saying things this morning is you and your presence and your reality in this place. I thank you that because you're alive, you're here and you're real. And I pray for every person in this room, Father, whatever the conversation needs to be this morning, I pray especially right now for anybody here who has never had a conversation with you, who has never begun that relationship with you of any kind. And I pray this morning you just give them the guts, give them the boldness, and give them the courage to step out in whatever faith they think they have and begin speaking and begin conversing, and begin communing with you. I pray that as we hold this cup and this tiny little wafer in our hand, meager as they are, that, Lord, it would be as if you yourself are right here offering these things to us for the very first time, just like you did to your own disciples that night before you died. I pray there would be that strong a sense of your presence in this place. That strong a sense that you are risen and you are here, far greater than what I say or the band plays or what's on the screen or whatever, whatever. Lord, that you are here and you are speaking. So come and speak and come and move and come and draw us to communicate back with you, the God who has spoken and now invites us to respond. And we thank you for your death and your resurrection. And we pray these things in the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. Amen.